welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and today we are going over uh, an album that has been uh, a huge influence on me. Uh, you know, I kind of got away from listening to Michael Schenker for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why, just kind of, you know, as, as I honed in on certain bands, uh, as much as I loved the albums that I knew by Michael Schenker, uh, for some reason, I, I wasn't tracking his progress. Uh, did get to see him perform. Um, and we talked about this the first time I interviewed Graham Bonnet and Bethany Heavenstone at uh, Michael Shanker Fest, which was here in Vegas at the House of Blues on a tour that they were doing with uh, Gary Barden and uh, Robert McCauley and uh, Graham Bonnet and Doogie White. It was it was just such an amazing thing to see instead of one singer covering whatever songs they wanted to do from whatever era, it was the singer that originally sang the song would come out be supported by the other singers. They would come on and off the stage as needed for different vocal parts. But the thing that amazed me about that show um, it was was the unity that I felt from everyone. It wasn't like, all right, I got to go out and sing this chorus for this guy, and then he's going to come out and sing backups during my verse. It was a genuine desire to be there on stage with each other and not necessarily be the lead at at all the time, which was really cool. I really loved that aspect of the show. Of course, just getting to see Michael Shanker live was an absolutely amazing uh, event. If you uh, get the chance, I know he's uh, gearing up to do another tour. So if you get the chance to go see him, go see him. He's uh, He puts on a great show. It's not a theatrical show by any means, but it is a very great live music performance is what I would say. Um, so this is one of the, the earlier albums. I think this was maybe his first album. Now I'm going to have to look, you know, I thought I had looked all this stuff up before and I had, and, uh, then I had to do a couple other things before I started recording and, uh, then it all got lost on me. So let me just double check, but I'm pretty sure this was the first album. Yes. Yes, it was. Came out in 1980. And uh, very, very interestingly, was produced by Roger Glover. Not shocking. It ends up on one of my favorite albums uh, piles because uh, it seems like everything that that man got involved with was pretty much spun gold, you know, Um, amazing as a bass player, as a songwriter, as a producer, you name it, the guy can do it. Uh, And just just a hell of a bass player, especially, you know, if you've listened to the stuff he's done. I would say in the last 10 years or so, it's just like all of a sudden he found another gear to step up his bass writing and performance. Um, just absolutely incredible. Roger Glover, that guy. Uh, so glad I got the chance to meet him uh, years and years ago. Uh, who knows uh, what will happen in the future? Maybe our paths will cross again. Fingers are crossed. In the meantime, we're talking about the Michael Schenker Group, and the album is called The Michael Schenker Group. Now, I have to say... Uh, I I listened. The reason I'm doing this episode now was on my list and I've already reviewed Assault Attack and Built to Destroy. And uh, I had this on my list, hadn't really given it much thought because there's all this other stuff I've been doing and all these reviews for Cherry Red Records and everything. And uh, the guys at the Deep Purple podcast, Nate and John, did a podcast on this because it is kind of an extension of Deep Purple. Roger Glover was the producer. Don Airy uh, plays keyboards on it. Mo Foster's on bass, who played on Butterfly Ball and all this stuff. So they did an, an episode on it. And I thought, you know, I really I'm just all excited about this album all over again. So I'm going to go ahead and cover it. The link to their episode is in the show notes. You guys should go check it out. And if you haven't listened to the Deep Purple podcast, 
I can tell you guys, uh, it is my favorite show. I, I never miss an episode. Whenever they do a, uh, a live stream for the, the patrons, I, I have been there. Ironically, the only one I apparently wasn't there for was the one when they covered uh, Rainbows Live in Munich 77. I'm still not sure how I missed that. But um, that was the one that uh, David Stone played on, who's the keyboard player in my band, Era Patches. So uh, ironically, of all the ones that I had missed, it was that one. Uh, unless there's another one that I missed that I didn't know about, but I don't think so. Um, anyway, so they covered this and, and they had some really interesting comments on the album cover. Um, I'm going to give you my thoughts on it before we get into the music, because I was thinking about this and every album that I've put out, with the exception of a, uh, a short run I did on CD of the best of Scott Haskin, every album has had a title. There's been some concept to it, whether it be you know, like my first album was called Origins because it was all of, except for the very first song I wrote, it was all the like original set of songs that I wrote. And then I would write a bunch more songs enough to fit on an album and put on an album and typically title it after either a line in a song or the title of one of the songs. So it had something to anchor to as far as a, a, a you know, what you would do with the cover, some kind of visual concept that you could put to it. And um, but I, I've never done a self-titled album. So even with the best of Scott Haskin, you could still pick out of those, you know, 12 songs or whatever it was, you could still pick something out of there for a visual uh, concept and have it relate to the album. But if, if I were to just call an album Scott K. Haskin, unless I did a portrait, uh, which I would never do, what would the what would the concept be for the album cover? I need to throw that that question out to Kelly, uh, too, but I'm afraid that she'll come up with like 82 good ideas and then I'll want to write the album. Um, but I, I mean, there's nothing to anchor to. So where do you go? It's whatever somebody comes up with as an idea for an album cover is probably going to stick because you're not anchoring it to anything unless you were to still relate it to like a line in a song or a song title, even though you're not titling the album that, uh, that could be a, a kind of an anchor, but it's a little bit more abstract, but nothing's going to be more abstract than just some random picture that relates to nothing. And I, I honestly feel that that's what we have here. So we have uh, Michael with a couple of wires hooked up to him in some sort of exam chair that's uh, kind of high off the ground or, or elevated, uh, hooked up to a, a a couple of power cords. It looks like one isn't even plugged in. And the other one is like a very thick, uh, might be like a hydraulics cord for them lifting up the the chair. Um, I'm not sure how those um, chairs work because I'm only in them when I go to like a doctor or a dentist's office. But it's that kind of chair, basically. Uh, it has that overhead light that you would go uh, and see at the dentist's office. The, um, you know, the uh, the sphere that's cut on both sides, that green on each side with that, uh, you know, black filter thing in the middle. Um, and it, it but it's it's kind of set. This whole thing is kind of set in like a it what looks like an industrial room like in a basement or or something kind of unfinished. Um, there's a, a power box on the wall. Um, it's not like a, a really nice finished room. There's no decorations. There's no paintings or anything. It's just like a two-tone green wall with other patches that were covered in some texture of green paint. It's really like he's about to be a marathon man. So if you've ever seen the movie The Marathon Man with... Um, Oh, crap. No, I can't think of his name. Dustin Hoffman. That's that's who it is. So if you've ever seen the Marathon Man with Dustin Hoffman, 
he's in like a, a chair and they lean him back and they uh, they start extracting his uh, teeth with no anesthesia or anything, by the way, because, you know, if you're trying to torture somebody, why would you, uh, you know, make it easy for them? Uh, because he's not giving whatever answer they think he's a, a an agent or something. I don't I don't really remember the concept. I, I cannot watch that scene again. Um, I remember liking the movie, but it's it's not one I will revisit. That's there's there's a lot of things I can watch, but that to me is just like one of the most hideous things. So uh, I I will not watch that again. Uh, but it kind of reminds me of that. Um, you know, it, it only the only reason I get that feeling because he's like very calm. Uh, you know, he's just relaxing his hands on the arms of the chair. He doesn't look like he's uh, scared, intimidated. He looks like, hey, I'm just waiting for you know them to turn on whatever movie I'm about to watch on my flight very casual. His shoes are off for some reason. His shirt is off for some reason. Um, not what happens when I go to the dentist, at least not that I'm awake for. And, um, yeah, so it, 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 it's weird that he looks so calm, but it looks like a, you know, potential torture room, but you don't see any medical implements. There's no tray of, uh, you know, stethoscope or one of those uh, little things that they bounce off of your knee. There's no uh, shots, no dental implements, nothing at all. Uh, It's just the open room. And then uh, over to the right, you see a uh, nurse or a a doctor. I'm not sure what she is. Um, Her hair is tied back, but also really coming out at the same time, which you wouldn't have, um, you know, in an office like that. Um, She's kind of in the shadows a little bit, but it looks like she's uh, about to come in and deal with him or you know, have a conversation with him or whatever is going to happen. But it's just that dingy green basement looking thing that gives you that something bad's about to happen um, feeling. I, I can't necessarily relate it to a song unless it's a victim of illusion, but I that would be a stretch to me, honestly. I think somebody just said, hey, why don't I've got this really cool location. Why don't we shoot you in this chair? We'll put the overhead light on you and it'll just look really, you know, rock and roll and badass because you won't be wearing a shirt or, or shoes. And then people can argue that, uh, you know, you're like Paul McCartney and Abbey Road and you're already dead. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't get it. I, I don't um, I don't know what it was. But like I said, what's your concept going to be? You're uh, you're just naming the album after the band. So since you're not going to anchor it to any kind of concept, uh, the picture is just whatever. So what do you do? You feature the lead guy in the band. Why not? Right. It's it's definitely something that if it was, if you were flipping through records at the record store, or if you were, you know, walking down the aisles and you saw that was on the front face, or if it was hanging on the wall, you would probably give it a second look. Um, just like, hey, I wonder what's going on here. And then, you know, hopefully you would grab the album, flip it over, look at the song titles, see who's on the album, whatever you're going to do to entice you to buy the album. Um, so I would say the cover probably does its job as far as drawing you in and making you wonder what's happening so that you'll maybe pay more attention to it, maybe flip it over and uh, dig into it a little more, maybe uh, research it or, or see if you can listen to some songs. But back then we couldn't do that. We didn't have places to go to just listen to a clip unless they were unless they had it on at the record store. You or uh, if you happen to hear something on the radio or you could request it from your local rock station, you weren't going to hear it. And you either had to cha- take the chance on buying an album, hope maybe one of your friends had it and you could check it out that way and then decide if you wanted to buy it. It was pretty much just like, hey, um, I have 12 bucks in my pocket or eight or whatever it was at the time. And I'm going to take a chance on this because I think it looks cool. Or, hey, Don Aries on this like he was uh, well, he, he was in Rainbow. Um, you know, I, I, I like him. Maybe I'll buy the album. It, it was really a crapshoot back then if you weren't uh, hearing it on the radio. 
So, uh, and this was before MTV also, keep that in mind. So uh, anyway, without any concept or anything to go off of, that's what they did for the cover. Uh, I, I like it, but I think it's just because I'm used to it. I don't think I ever really gave things too much of a thought back in those days, ex- unless the album cover really stood out, like in the Court of the Crimson King, one of the most badass album covers I've ever seen in my life. Uh, you know, looking at that album cover, you have to know, you just have to know what the music is like. Uh, I would say, you know, Dio's first couple album covers were uh, really ones that would draw me in. I mean, obviously, you know, it's going to be hard rock or heavy metal or something like that based on the Iron Maiden feeling of the covers. Um, Those are probably, you know, some of the best ones that I can think of. Uh, I'm sure there's others that'll come to mind as as we go. Uh, Come and Get It by Whitesnake. Uh, I love that cover. Um, But I think most of them I just kind of took as, okay, this is the album cover. And I didn't really think too much about it. Like I would stare at the album cover while I was listening to music and you know, like pour over every little detail. But I don't think I invested too much of my thought in why did they pick this? How did this come to be? What were the alternatives? You know, why did they hire this person? And I just pretty much just took it as, okay, this is the album cover. Let me study it and learn it. And that was it. Now, um, I'm probably a little more analytical about it, although I, I still play the all right, this is what they chose for whatever reason. This is what they chose. And I don't dig too deep into it. But sometimes I'm like, okay, I think they did this because of this or this would make sense or, you know, this doesn't make sense or whatever. Uh, But I care more about the music. You guys know that. So we're going to get into the music. And our first song is called Armed and Ready. This is on one of those um, Guitar Hero games too, I've read, uh, which is not surprising just from the opening riff alone. Here it is, Armed and Ready. Okay, here's what I love about this song. Absolutely every fucking thing, period, everything. It starts out with a great riff. You got drums coming in uh, that show that they're going to sound great. He's a heavy hitter. He's powerful. Uh, Tom's sound amazing. You get that the mix is really strong right off the bat. Killer bass line. You get powerful vocals. You've got many changes in this song, too. It shows that it's a little bit progressive. It shows that it keeps moving. You know, as soon as you're getting comfortable with one part, it goes into another part. I love that. There's a nice scream in there. Um, I get the feeling, too, and I don't know. I, I, I've i never actually looked into this, but I really feel like in a lot of the songs, unless there's a harmony or something planned, or it's specifically an instrumental where it's planned out, 
Um, I really get the feeling that Michael's very spontaneous with his solos. They feel so natural and so comfortable. I just honestly feel like he just goes in and records them very similar to the way that Richie Blackmore does. Not a lot of planning, just this is what I like. Okay, we're keeping this one or let me do it again. And after one or two takes, like, all right, I've got it, you know. Um, it just it just feels so natural. And I love the way the solo comes back into the song. It also ends on a really cool progressive bit that it just gives you all the elements. And it tells you that this is a band that A, is going to kick ass musically. B, is a band that should absolutely be taken seriously. And C, they're going to rock your world. No doubt about it whatsoever. And so this is not just a great opening song for the album. It's a great opening song to introduce you to the Michael Schenker group. Absolutely love it. Fantastic. So before I get on to the next song, I'm going to uh, tell you who's in the band, because that might help. On guitars, we have Michael Schenker. On vocals, we have Gary Barton. On drums, we have Simon Phillips. Simon Phillips, I mean, geez. Uh, bass, we have Mo Foster. And on keyboards, we have Don Erie. And like I said, this was produced by Roger Glover. I think this was 1980 that it came out. Um, a stunning group of people. But interestingly, when I looked at Wikipedia, it lists Michael and Gary as being the only members. It lists Simon, Mo, and Don as being studio players, you know, just session guys that they hired to be uh, on this. So, you know, whenever you record an album, you hope that you've kind of put a band together. And maybe you're going to go out and uh, and tour and do some stuff. Um, I don't know who was in the touring band, but obviously, you know, that that changed by the time they got to the second album. Um, but a very, very solid group of musicians right here. And it's not surprising that this album, uh, you know, like I said, is one of my favorites, not just because you have Roger Glover producing it. You've got Michael Schenker as a writer, but you've got just top class musicians now, that doesn't always mean that you're going to come out with a good album, right? I mean, you could play the fantasy baseball thing and say, I'm going to put my favorite musicians in a band and I bet they'll write amazing songs. Well, no, that's not usually the case. And maybe it is better sometimes that you have session musicians because they're not they're not going to be tied to, hey, you got to use my idea. I'm part of this band, too. They usually come in. They'll have input. Um, you know, do you want me to play it like this or like that? Um, how would you be open to this idea? But most of the time session musicians, here's the music. We just want you to give a great performance. And so it's, there's, there's a bit of a different connection to it. They're going to give you their, a great performance. There's no doubt about that, but it comes in more in terms of the writing and, um, you know, how, what they're allowed to participate in, how open people are to their ideas. But if you're going to bring in guys like this, why wouldn't you listen to what they had to say? I mean, it would be absolutely ridiculous. And, and Michael Shaker was no new musician to the scene. I mean, he'd been playing with the Scorpions and, you know, he he had some experience coming into this band. So he wasn't an unknown entity. But why would you bring in a Simon Phillips or a Don Airy or a Mo Foster and go, yeah, I'm really not interested in your thoughts. Just play the music. OK, like, that would be so ridiculous. Uh, I, I I mean, I could see some musicians doing that, but uh, I can't imagine that Michael did. So I don't know who. Uh, had what real input. I mean, I could look at the writing credits and say, but th those don't really tell the tale. You know, they really don't. Uh, they just tell you who got paid. So our uh, our next song on the list here is song two. This one, uh, we're going to take it down uh, just a little bit for a minute. It's called Cry for the Nations.
I really love the the riff and the rhythm during the riff on this because it it feels like it's moving forward. Then they take a a quick breath and then hurry to catch up to get back on the one again. And I I've always loved that as as a drummer. That's just kind of a fun thing to me to play. I don't know if any other drummer would agree, but for me it's it's kind of fun. Uh, again, we've got a great vocal. We've got multiple parts in this sound that keep it interesting. It does not feel like a five and a quarter minute song to me. Not even close. In fact, I have to say Armed and Ready doesn't really feel like four minutes either. Um, it's four minutes and eight seconds on the the MP3 file that I'm going off of. But man, these the songs, they're just like, they just keep moving and they change from part to part to part pretty quickly. They don't feel so repetitive at all. And uh, and it, that makes me feel like the song goes much faster than it really does, which is to me, that's one of my uh, benchmarks for great writing. You know, if, if you could put me through a, a five minute song and I feel like I've only been listening for a couple minutes, I'm like, wow, that was short. Oh, no, it wasn't. That is some good writing because you've drawn me in and you've made the time pass very, very quickly. Uh, as long as I'm not driving and I haven't mixed my missed my exit, then we're good. <laughs> I say that since most of the time I listen to music, I'm in the car. Um, but yeah, a very, very good song. It's kind of a, an interesting one to have in second position to have one that's so long, uh, five minutes and 14 seconds for a, a second song. You know, I get, I get so used to that formulaic, uh, we're going to start with a really explosive intro. Then we're going to dial it back a little bit and do like a three, three and a half minute ballad. Uh, then we're going to get heavy again, kind of, uh, set up that, um, this seems like it's a lot longer than you would have in that position. Also kind of a, a much more mellow introduction, but it definitely works for me. Part of that, again, is because I'm probably just so used to this album. I mean, I've been listening to it forever. It was the first Michael Schenker album that I heard. Um, I want to say Assault Attack was probably second, and then Built to Destroy was probably third. Um, can't be positive on that, but that seems like the right progression to me. Um, but you know, it's all like within that deep purple rainbow family again, cause Cozy Powell played with Michael, uh, Graham Bonnet sang on one of the albums. Um, you know, uh, and if you guys didn't check out that show, uh, when I initially interviewed Graham, we talked about all the songs on Assault Attack and, uh, you know, what he was doing with, uh, the Graham Bonnet band and stuff at the time. Uh, absolutely fantastic time talking to, uh, Graham and Bethany Heavenstone, uh, just absolutely wonderful people, um, so uh, our next song, this one has a little bit of a, an interesting uh, personal story for me. So back in the day when we were living off of vinyl and sometimes cassette, uh, cassette was starting to take over around the time that this album came into view for me. But I had the album. I remember I had the vinyl. And um, there were songs that I wanted to learn. There were songs that I just loved. And I noticed that as soon as it was over, I would pick up the needle and go to the back to the beginning of the song and listen to it again and then listen to it again and again before continuing on with the rest of the album. So I got tired of stopping whatever I was doing, whether I was drawing or painting a picture or practicing on my drum pad or whatever it was. Um, I got really tired of stopping whatever I was doing to get up to restart the song. So what I started doing was I would make full length cassette tapes of one side being whatever song it was that I wanted to listen to over and over again. This was the first song I ever did that with. The song I think that was on the B side of the tape that I also did that with, I believe was Gethsemane from the movie version of Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm pretty sure that was the the backside of it. I only did it with a couple songs because I, I realized that I got like very quickly the songs started to sound different to me. 
um, the phrasings didn't mean as much because I was just hearing them so repetitively in 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 concession uh, in succession that I didn't um, I didn't enjoy the song as it was taken away from. So I stopped doing that. But I remember those two songs. Um, I I know there was something else I did it with, but I can't think of what it was. It might have been Space Truck in the Machine Head version from Deep Purple. Um, I'm not sure. I'll let you guys know if I think of it if, in any case. But um, yeah, this was the very first song that I ever did that with because I and I remember specifically one night I had the album on and I was playing it and I was doing an oil painting and it was an oil painting of a storm. My I had my bedroom window open and it was storming outside and I, you know, I could still smell the linseed oil because I, I had uh, a can of linseed oil and um, probably should have been doing it in the basement. But in any case, I was in the room and I remember specifically that's when I came up with the idea to uh, to go ahead and do that because uh, I just got tired of putting the brush down. I'm in the middle of trying to create something specific and, and I got to put the brush down and stop and then try and recapture the the positioning and the brush stroke and everything else, because now that I've stopped, I'm not in the same physical zone. I might um, put put the brush on a little bit too hard or a little bit too light and not get the effect that I was getting uh, when I had to stop. So it really just became out of that uh, necessity. Of course, then when we got CDs, we could put a song on repeat uh, or you know whatever we wanted to do. So uh, that really kind of changed the game. But back in the days of analog, that's how we had to do things. So uh, that story being completed, here is one of my all-time favorite songs, Victim of Illusion. I never noticed before, and this is the beauty of working with, you know, quality headphones as opposed to, you know, the old stereo speakers in the, uh, in the old days or, uh, like earbuds or those cheap little headphones we used to have with our Walkman with the orange fuzzies that we were always replacing because they just, the headphones would rip right through them. Um, there is a, an ah that comes right in before screams are loud, but then he can't hear just, just a little one in the background which is a nice um, thing that precedes the actual backing vocals that come in after that line. I never heard that before. That's uh, that's really nice. Um, this, uh, this song is just, to me, it, it's an absolute masterpiece, but a lot of it comes with the production. The sound of it, the, the depth of the uh, intensity, the picking, the bass guitar is so dark on this one, and it really, really works for, uh, for the song. Um, interestingly, like subject wise, it kind of reminds me of eyes of the world by rainbow, but, um, just, just because it's, it's kind of like a similar character in the story, 
But uh, musically, God, I just love this song. And, you know, Gary never pushes the vocals too hard into like some high screams and stuff. He just stays within those ahs and everything in the background and just a really good solid tone throughout the song. Uh, until you get to the breakdown where he pushes the vocals a little bit, but he doesn't do like, you know, anything that's over the top or outside of the song. And and that's another thing about Michael's playing, uh, much like I say about Richie Blackmore, about uh, Mick Box, why these guys are my favorite guitar players and, and, you know, how much I love that they stay creative, but within the realm of what's reasonable for the song. They're not trying to, even even when Michael plays fast, much like Mick, it doesn't feel like it's taking me outside of the song as opposed to, you know, guitar players that are cramming a lot in. Like, like I've said about Ingve Malmsteen, his playing style for me, it takes me out of the song a lot. And I'm like, okay, there's me and a guitar and Oh wait, now that the solo's over, there's another band uh, is, is with us again. And, um, and I feel like Michael, the way that he plays, it keeps me in the song. And I think that's really the best way I can explain it. Um, on, you know, how I determine who I like as a guitar player. I mean, Michael pushes it a little bit for me now and then, but, uh, but, but Mick did too, you know, but typically he stays, they both stay within that realm of this suits the song. And I really, really love that. Those kind of solos I could listen to all day long. Um, but there's also, you know, a whole song to listen to. So why would I do that? Um, but yeah, victim of illusion, absolute top hit for me. Um, I hate ranking songs over other songs, but the fact of the matter is uh, this to me is just one of my go-to songs. Like anytime I'm like, you know, I need a little bit of energy. I need something to pump me up a little bit. Like this is one of those songs I would go to for that because it just, it just drives. It's solid. It's got great parts in it. Uh, When I used to be able to sing, I can still sing it now and then, but when I used to be able to sing, I would sing it all the time. Just a fantastic, fantastic piece of music. So uh, kudos on that one, guys. That We're going to move on to our first instrumental of the album. This is called Bayou Pleasurette. This song is just such a a fine piece of artwork, obviously very classically influenced, but it it just has, uh, it, it really shows for the first time on this album that Michael doesn't just play great solos. He doesn't just write great riffs. He feels what he plays. This song really shows the depth of his emotion and, and that's uh, why it draws me in so much. Uh, interestingly, when my brother and I did our first uh, public concert, which was at Clintondale High School in the auditorium opening for the band Metal Anguish, we were under the name 
I think we were creeping death at the time. That sounds right. Maybe we weren't. No, I think we were creeping death. And uh, this was one of the songs that we played. And even though there's no drums on it, I played drums anyway, damn it, because it was rock and roll. And we were rock and roll. And that's what you do. You just put drums in things. Um, really fun song to play, though. Um, really just beautiful layers of guitar. Really, though, uh, just as much as Michael is amazing on this, so is Mo Foster. I mean, the bass guitar on this. I don't even know how he came up with what to play or how Michael's, you know, came up with, here's what I want you to play. However, that was decided. Brilliant genius. I mean, these are guys at the top of their game, just writing and performing incredibly well. And I don't know of too many musicians that could put a song that's this technical, but this feeling together this well. And they absolutely nailed something very, very magical here. Um, I, I've always loved this song. It's one that I always look forward to hearing. And uh, well, I mean, pretty much like this whole damn album. So that brings us to uh, song number five already. We're at the halfway you know, mid-mark because there's not only nine tracks on this album. We weren't at the point yet where bands were cramming 16 and 17 songs because that's what you could fit on a CD. It was, you know, six to nine songs on an album average. And uh, song number five in the middle slot is called Feels Like a Good Thing. Subtle. I mean, Armed and Ready was kind of subtle. This is just not even subtle at all. Uh, good song, though. It's got some really good riffs in it, a great ending, uh, really powerful. I love the drum intro to it. Um, I love the the little bursts of double bass that we get in here in the fills and then uh, towards the end. Really strong vocal, nice layers on that, too, to really uh, make, it, make uh, Gary Barton's voice sound nice and thick. Uh, great guitar solo, you know. Um, it, it has all the makings of another great rock and roll song. It's, it's probably the most, um, I, I don't, I don't think laid back is the right word, but probably the, the, I get the least excited about this song when it comes on, but saying that's like saying, what's the worst slice of cake in this delicious cake that you just ate? You know, um, honestly, they're all great songs and, uh, I, I love each and every one of them. Uh, we'll move on to our next song. Song six is another instrumental. This is called Into the Arena.
you know what? We might not have played Bayou Pleasurette at that concert. I, I know we did Into the Arena because that was, uh, we used that as the introduction into my drum solo, which was a lot of fun. Didn't really have anything planned at all. Just kind of hit stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, well, that was my first live experience uh, with a, you know, a real crowd, uh, aside from like snare drum concerts and stuff, but, uh, or really just drum pad. I don't think I ever, no, I did play the snare drum at a concert in sixth grade. Uh, go me anyway um yeah this is a, a great song i mean it's just from that muted picking then it it uh, opens up a little bit you just have those those chords uh, right behind it in the transition it's just got such power to it um killer killer performance on drums by simon phillips but even just that that riff during the song um i i really love what everyone's playing on it um just a, a fantastic and energetic piece of music. And if you're not a huge fan of drum solos, it's not that long. You can get through it, but it's very, very well played. And uh, just a, a song that just explodes with rock and roll everywhere you, you listen. Every note is just uh, fantastic to me. Um, obviously, as a drummer, uh, you know, I lean towards a song like this because there's not a lot of songs that that feature drums in the way that this one does. But even aside from that part, the rest of the song is great. And I love the way that they kind of digress musically into that drum solo. And they just kind of like, all right, I'm powering down. And uh, and then let Simon Phillips take over until it's time to come in. And then they just come in exploding. Love that little piece that Don Airy plays uh, at the end of the, the song after the drum solo. Um, just the whole thing is great. And it just culminates in absolute fire. Love this song. Um so our next song is called Looking Out From Nowhere. have to say on, on this one, the real hero for me is Mo Foster. I, the bass on this song is just phenomenal. I love the groove that he's got and, uh, you know, right from the beginning and he keeps it during the verse. But this song just kind of explodes into a big party. Uh, the tempo picks up and uh, it's it's just a, a good rocking song. At first you think, oh, OK, well, we've got another mid-tempo song, but, you know, buckle up because it's not going to stay that way for long. Very great song, uh, fantastic writing and performance on this one. But yeah, I, I got to give it to Mo uh, for making this song for me. While everybody plays great, that bass line just, man, it gets me every time. Absolutely love it. And the tone of his bass, I love the sound he got on this album. It's dirty, but not, it doesn't sound dirty at the same time. Like he can really, really hit some notes and make it sound really powerful. But it, it's also not like, you know, grungy sort of bass guitar. It's not you know, really distorted or anything. It's just got an edge to it that is just just excellent for this sound uh, that the band has. 
So uh, we are going to slow things down a little bit before we get to the end. We have to relax things before we get to the finale. This one is called Tales of Mystery. much like Bayou Pleasurette. And you know, since bayous are in the South, I wonder if that's a masturbation metaphor, pleasing yourself in the South. I don't know. I I could just be pushing reality as I often do, Uh, but it's a much more fun place to live than reality usually is. So uh, this is a great song because now much like Bayou Pleasurette, we're getting that feeling, uh, you know, that deep feeling from Michael in his playing again, but now we're coupling it with some vocals and just a really beautiful song. Those little slide bits on guitar uh, really uh, just are wonderful touches that make this song special. But um, it's it's just a nice journey to take. You know, you you just kind of sit down and you just go along with the band for it. It's a very enjoyable song. Doesn't ever burst into any kind of rock and roll, which is great because we just did that. Um, recently. And this is nice to just have a, you know, just a nice tranquil, but elegantly performed and written song to get into before we hit Lost Horizons, which is not that at all. Here it is. Maybe it's just that little uh, fill-in that we heard from Michael there in the in the previous section. Um, but this always reminded me a little bit of uh, Trial Before Pilots, or uh, uh, no, uh, Pilot in Christ, I think would, would be the one uh, from the movie soundtrack of Jesus Christ Superstar. It just has that feel to it. Um, but uh, this is a very epic song, I would say. If they added a string section or something at the end, um, a song like this would be more on par with, say, Rainbow Stargazer, like a really epic journey 
that just kind of goes off at the end. And uh, it's one that I'm really glad that they did a fade out on because, again, I really want to chase that uh, music and I it doesn't allow me to go where it goes, which I like. Um, but a really cool song, really powerful. Uh, there's one part in, in the end in the craziness where Simon Phillips actually just changes into a whole different pattern. It starts as a fill and he just keeps playing it and playing it and playing it. And then he goes into a bigger fill and then returns to the song again. Really well done. Uh, just an adventure. It's kind of like they're, they're, they just told everybody, just go crazy at the end. You know, stick to the structure of the song, stay on tempo, stay on time, but do whatever the hell you want to do. And uh, it just really feels unleashed, I think would be the word uh, that I would I, I would best use to describe it. Uh, great song, a great way to, to end an excellent album. Obviously, you know, as, as you could tell from the very beginning of this podcast, I am a huge fan of this album. It was a very early influence album for me, but it's one that uh, it's it's never been worn out for me at all. I mean, I could still put on any one of these songs, enjoy it to the fullest, just like I did back, uh, you know, in the early 80s. Whenever I, I don't know exactly when this album came into my reality. I know it wasn't when it came out. I know it was sometime after that, but uh, it definitely would have been probably 83 or 84, I want to say somewhere in there, maybe. Um, it would have been after MTV started, but uh, not too far out, I think, before before I found it. Because at first it was like, you know, listening to whatever was on the radio, whether it was, you know, we had our, our classics uh, station, our rock and roll station, WRIF in Detroit. And then um, we had WHYT that was playing like more pop hits and stuff that kind of preceded the British New Wave invasion. And then they started playing that kind of stuff. And then uh, then MTV came out. So uh, my horizons expanded uh, again, you know, being exposed to music I wasn't hearing on the radio in Detroit. And, um, you know, that led to the discovery of all these other bands, you know, Rainbow and Deep Purple and White Snake and Michael Schenker and uh, all that sort of thing. But uh, great stuff. A, a fantastic album for me for, from beginning to end. I want to thank Nate and John at the Deep Purple Podcast for doing their show because it reminded me I hadn't done this album yet and I really, really wanted to. Um, but you know, when you have everything just on a list, uh, it's easy for things to get lost on that list. Yes, it's still in your vision there, but when you're looking at, you know, just tons and tons of things, it's easy for things to just get lost in that mix on the page. So, uh, thank you guys for inspiring me to do my review of this. Cause you guys did such a fantastic review on your show, heavily favorite album on the deep purple podcast as well. Go check out that link guys, uh, listen to their episode on it and check out all their other episodes. Cause it's a great show. And I want to thank you for hanging out with me for another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. We'll be back with another show before you know it. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Do something great for yourself. Do something great for somebody else. It takes so little effort. Instead of just like, you know, posting the suicide hotline, reach out to a friend and just say, hey, how you doing? I was thinking about you. I wanted to check on you and see how you are and it, just see where it goes. Be there for them. That's the way to do it. Have a great day, guys. We'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.